0: it better huh can't hurt us anymore not if we work together my name is Stephen King
1: welcome to filmstrip and our reviews of selected works of Stephen King featuring Nick okay show me and Jay
0: that's funny buddy real funny
1: these podcasts will be spoiler-filled and contain in-depth discussions of the plots, characters, and themes. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. We'll show those shitters what we can do. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Welcome to Film Strip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. Welcome back to our selected works of Stephen King Retrospective and our review of Christine, starring Keith Gordon, John Stockwell, Alexander Paul, Robert Prosky, Robert Splossom, you're my boy, Blue! And Harry Dean Stanton. Directed by John Carpenter. Released in December of 1983 on a budget of about $10 million. Grossed over $21 million at the box office. And yet we've had killer cars in our Stephen King Retrospective before. We did Maximum Overdrive, but I think this one is a little more the traditional Stephen King side of things, don't you?
0: To me, this is kind of like mixing Maximum Overdrive in with uh, a little bit of Stand by Me.
1: That, well, there certainly are some of the King tropes in here. We'll have to talk about those—the high school, or you know, high school of hell, growing up, and all of the thing, and the you know the the relationships and all that stuff. I mean, he certainly puts in a lot of that stuff, and some of it's on thick. Uh, I will say this, though, uh, about the story. I've never read the book, so I don't know how close this one resembles the final film i do know this holds the distinction of he was so popular at the time that the film rights were bought and went into production at least pre-production before the you know book was even released so like they had a copy of the book were writing the script off of that the book hadn't even hit the shelves yet so it was anything stephen king post shining was just getting thrown on the screen i think as fast as they could
0: Yeah, that was actually kind of shocking, because I've actually never seen this movie before, so I was kind of doing a little bit of research on it. I figured the book mostly came out in the 70s, because I saw this movie came out in 83, but then I saw the book also came out in 83, and I was kind of shocked by that. Uh, I guess, you know, it shows that he was pretty popular back then, and anything that he was writing was kind of getting snatched up pretty quick, uh can't even really think of any author today like that. Uh, maybe. I, well,
1: I, I can't. I mean, you know, you think about the Harry Potter and the Twilight films, but those are series, so they yeah. hold that distinction. This is a standalone, so yeah, it is kind of rare. I mean, I, I think there's a John Grisham, though, that was that way. I want to say the client, like the, per, the at least the film rights for that had been bought before it had ever been written or something like that. And so, I mean, after The Firm and The Pelican Brief, everything that he wrote for a while there you know, got turned into a movie, too. So I think he may be the only more modern analyst Log to that though. You're, you're right. Maybe the I person
0: know. that wrote the notebook, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nicholas Sparks. Yeah, I think his stuff gets turned around pretty fast too. You're right. So that's that's another one. They're a totally different genre. I think we just hit everything. Are we doing that retrospective <laughs> <So>. next? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> I am not down for Nicholas Sparks. John Grisham. We may have to talk, but uh, we'll get there when we get there. So I think though we got to do a plot summary, to get through this film, and then talk a little bit about the setup of it. I want to spend some time particularly talking about the director and uh, who I think has a definite touch on this film. So picked on at school, unnoticed by everyone except his one friend, Dennis, and overruled by his parents, geek Arnie Cunningham doesn't have a whole lot going for him. After barely escaping a beating from the shop class bully, Arnie stumbles upon a rusted nineteen fifty eight Plymouth Fury, nicknamed Christine, that's for sale. He buys the hunk of scrap despite heavy protests from Dennis and his parents. Arnie goes about restoring Christine, and soon his hobby becomes an obsession. And the spirit that haunts the old car falls equally hard for Arnie, unwittingly making him cooler than he used to be, as Christine magically repairs most of her old damage and puts her beauty on display. Christine violently attacks anyone who dares stand between her and Arnie, starting with the shop-class bullies and his gang... And when Arnie's girlfriend begins to fear the car, she and Dennis decide the only way to save Arnie's soul is to destroy Christine. And in a finale at the junkyard, Arnie is killed when he's thrown through Christine's windshield. Dennis runs over the possessed vehicle with a bulldozer, sends it to the car compactor, reducing Christine to a small cube. But in a last shot, we see the big grill of Christine slowly starting to move back into place and the radio flicking on, implying she may not be dead after all. And that's a pretty concise plot summary for what happens. We'll get into more the detail as we go through this, because I do think this is a film that lends itself well to being you know sort of walked through as, as the acts occur, but I want to start with the director here. First time on Continuous Play, John Carpenter, and I certainly have thoughts about him, but where are you with Carpenter and his work?
0: Believe it or not, I'm really not a big fan of his. I love the original Halloween. That is a movie I watch once a year on Halloween. But as far as his other films go, I'm really not a big fan. I'm in the minority when it comes to the thing. I can see a lot of merit in the film. Uh, the special effects works are phenomenal, but the movie just to me is very cold, and it's just it's not enjoyable to watch. And the only other movies that really come to mind for me for me is uh, movies like *Ghost of Mars* or <laughs> yeah, just movies like that. Or uh, well, I mean, he
1: did he did *They Live*. Um Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, Invisible Man, Escape from LA, Escape from New York.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've seen I've seen Escape from LA, and I've seen Ghosts of Mars, and I've seen the thing. I know I've not seen a lot of his work, but from what I've seen, he's kind of like he's one for four for me. I like I said, I think Halloween is one of the most classic, one of my top ten films of all time. But the other ones are just kind of cold and distant for me, so I am i don't know. I'm not a fan.
1: Well, see, I, and I'll fall in on the opposite of it, is I'm a Carpenter fan that realizes he's lost his touch. I mean, I don't know that he's done a good film in 10 or 15 years, but I like a lot of his... Your back catalog. I mean, I like stuff like, uh, I love Halloween. You say you watch that once a year. I watch that several times a year. I watch all of those. We ever do a Halloween retrospective, I may not get to be on it because I'm such a fan of it, but I, I watch that. Um, I've actually only seen Escape from New York like once. I've never seen Escape from L.A. Those are the ones that didn't work for me, but I love the thing. I love the cold presence of that. I think it's, it's aided greatly by the performances in it, but I love that. Uh, Christine has always been a big one for me. Um, big Trouble Little China, Starman, not so much, but like I even like you know kitschy stuff like Prince of Darkness and They Live. Like I can find merit in those, and then even a film like In the Mouth of Madness, which I know is sort of mixed with a lot of folks. I happen to really like that movie and think it's a good Lovecraftian kind of twist. So I can get though on why in 1983 you would grab John Carpenter to do a Stephen King movie because let's just think about it. In the time that had had he had really hit the scene in 1978 with. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. I mean, he had done that film. He had done The Fog, which was a big hit. He had done Escape from New York. He had done The Thing. And I, so, I mean, he was a, a director to get in the horror genre or the thriller genre if you wanted to get someone. And I, I've never read the book, and I don't, I assume you haven't either. Uh, so I don't know how much of this, again, translates from page to screen, but. I definitely feel like the first half of this movie, which is all about the setup, and and the setup, really, of the Arnie character, is very much Stephen King, but the back half of it, when all the action happens, is very much a John Carpenter film, and I feel like this film is paced very Carpenter-esque as
0: well. Oh, definitely. I really felt a lot of the thing in this movie, just how it's a very, very slow build. Um, I think if it would have been anybody else directing it, really you probably would have got to the action a lot quicker and it probably would have been a lot more horrific to begin with than kind of what we're seeing here cuz basically the first half of the movie is nothing but character building. You're going to know you're going to know all the yeah. characters, you're going to know Arnie, you're going to know Dennis, you're going to know the uh, the bullies, you're going to know all these kind of background characters, you're going to know, you know, the the guy from Mrs. Doubtfire, <laughs> uh, what's his name? I forget the <laughs> actor's name, but you get to know him, the uh, the grumpy shopkeep is what you want to call him and yeah, I just that's what I just want to start out with saying is I was actually really impressed with that. Watching this movie was just the amount of time it was taking. And it could have like totally went like uh yeah. maximum overdrive and just totally went overkill with the car right away. But it didn't. And I really, really enjoyed that.
1: I think you a know, uh, thing about this film and I'll, I'll play a little bit of my hand here. First, how I got introduced to this growing up, the minister at the church I attended was a big Stephen King fan. And he also liked thriller films. He liked films like Dial-M for Murder and the original Psycho. I mean, what I would call much more tame horror films. But he actually had seen this one and really dug it. And so when I think by the time I went around seeing this, I saw this when it was on video in like, I don't know, 88, 89, somewhere like that. I was 10 or 11. And he said, you really you really should watch this. I think you would dig it. It's coming on television. You know, that's the safer version at the time. He said, you yeah, watch it with your, your dad and see what you think of it and so I wound up watching this with them and he and I've had several conversations about it and it always struck me that this was the one that he really went to and he said the same exact things about it though that you said that it's the way it's paced and the way that, that it doesn't go over the top with its gore and that it's it's just done in a way that it actually makes something that is a ridiculous concept a haunted car chasing people and the way it chases them down and kills them it takes that and makes it really suspenseful and it just works. And for a film that is... I mean, let's call it now, Nick. It's 30 years old as of the time we're recording this podcast. And it feels just like it was set up, you know, a few weeks ago and shot us a period piece from the 70s. Because it's set in the 70s. And And I think that's a smart move by everyone involved. And uh, i got to say, you know, we've talked a lot about King's style and the way he likes to do things and stuff. And I really dig the way most of this unfolds and how he introduces this character, or, or the really the three main characters, Arnie, Dennis, and, and Christine. And I, I don't know, I, d- I just really enjoyed that each of them got a real evolving arc, and that first act is really long because, like you said, it's all set up.
0: Well, let's start at the beginning of this movie. Is um, You kind of see the, uh, the, the plant that they're all getting made in, and you got all the kind yep. of off-white Plymouth Furies, and you just have this lone red one. And yeah. <laughs> it just, I, was la- I was laughing when I saw Satan's it. the automobile. guy has his hand on the hood and it <laughs> shuts it on his hand. So am I to think that Christine was possessed right away? I think that's what we're supposed okay. to believe
1: is that she is has been possessed from the beginning. And that can we just say it now? They never explain this. They never know. It, it, you know, we never get the the unraveling. I think nowadays they would they would make you do that. The studio would, and it would be some contrived you know alien flies around the earth or something. You know, it'd be some ridiculous thing as to why it happened. But it's you're, you can read it one of two ways. One way is that the car falling on the guy's hand and the guy's evil. Hateful thoughts toward it drove it to fury or just the play on the idea that a Plymouth Fury would be a car possessed by pure rage and fury and, um you know, jealousy. I think that's the theme of this this whole movie anyway. It's about jealousy and particularly the way the the characters all react and interact with one another. I don't know how he could get away from it. But let's tell let's talk one more thing about the opening though, the song. I think that's one thing about Christine the film that is incredibly memorable and it's bad to the bone by George Thurgood and the Delaware Destroyers. Now, as a guitar player and a slide guitar player and stuff like that, this is like, you, you have to know how to do this. You know, everybody is going to play this song. I played in a lot of pub bands and stuff growing up and in college. And every now and then you had to break this one out. And I cannot hear this song. I can't hear this song and not immediately think of this film. Uh, did you know that the two were associated?
0: No, I didn't know this song was in this film. I hear the song and I think, automatically I think Terminator 2. When I hear "bad at the bone," put mm-hmm. off,
1: uh. which is obviously why that's put in there. Cameron has even said that that's what he sort of was going for. There was the the sort of the the laugh of Christine. It became every bad guy's song for a long time, but it got its start here, and I thought that was so cool. I don't know compared to the rest of the film, which is this real '80s, very typical John Carpenter, you know, synthesized score. It's a it stands out. I mean, it definitely sticks out as music that gets you in a certain mood immediately.
0: Oh, definitely, definitely. But I think that's a lot to do with the uh at least with me the kind of connotation that I have with it now with being like Terminator 2 or kind of being like the uh almost like it's like you know it's bad to the bone but it's almost like you play it in like almost an ironic sense a lot of times now or cuz it's it's yeah. really when you compared to like you know heavy metal today or something like that George Thorogood really isn't that hard. So when you kind of hear the song being played it's almost ironic thinking like it's kind of soft but I don't know. It, it fit good with that. I really like the way it was, and I just like back again to like you know you has got this lone red car there. Kind of like came off as almost like the ugly duckling of the bunch. Like this, you know, which one doesn't belong? And so right away, I kind of knew. I kind of figured I'm like, oh, that's Christine right when I saw because it. it's like that's the only red one.
1: Well, can I say this too? I think this is a another thing that you can lend to Carpenter. The way he tells things without dialogue. It's all done with music and shots and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got you've got the assembly line going, and you're hearing this song that's all bad to the bone, and it's all about, you know, I've been I've always been bad, I'm just the baddest of all time, you know, a rock song. And I think that's what we're supposed to get, is that ma- the malevolence of the Plymouth Fury has just always been there. And that's very much a Stephen King thing, the idea that, you know, the evil has always been here. It's just, it always is, it always was. You know, we talked about that with It.
0: Well, it's, it's, it's a John Carpenter thing, too. I mean, you look at Halloween... Yeah. it's just evil's evil. There's no explanation for it. And you kind of get that with this movie. And even like, you know, I was talking about how similarly paced to the thing. This movie has got the same type of pace that Halloween does. We kind of got that, you kind of got, you kind of got that first scene there, you know, the first, the setup shot that really is just kind of, you know, the, the, you know, the prologue to the story. And then it kind of just gets into the main story. And it's just a very slow build throughout.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it spends the whole first act just on characters after the opening scene. I mean, we get two two workers here. The guy gets his, you know, the hood slammed on his hand and then somebody, you know, drops cigar ash on one of the seats and gets choked to death, you know, mysteriously inside of the car. And it's like, wow, you have this haunted car. And this, again, it's, it's 1957, 1958 when this is happening. And then we go ahead. We just flash right ahead. 21 years later, it says. And... We meet our two male leads, Arnie and Dennis. And now I know Keith Gordon and John Stockwell from other roles that they've had. Stockwell's actually a pretty decent director in his own right now, but I remember him from a little 80s film called My Science Project. I don't know if you ever saw that or not. It's a great little kitsch uh, of a film, uh, very much. You know, heavily rooted in the night, late 1980s but he's good in it. And I know Keith Gordon from Jaws 2 and some of his other things. I think he's a, a filmmaker as well. But what do you make of these two guys? Particularly Arnie because he's got to be the lead. I mean, you hear the names of people that got, you know, they, they passed up or either didn't take the role. I mean, they wanted Kevin Bacon. You know, a lot of other people had a shot at this and you get this kind of a little, little nebbish guy. I think he plays the nerd really well.
0: See, for me, I had no idea what was going on in this movie. I just knew Christine was about some type of haunted or alive car. So when I first meet these two characters, I didn't know who the main character was. I thought it was actually Dennis at first. Because a lot of times in these horror movies, you know, you're looking at like mm-hmm. something like uh, Fright Night or something like that, where you kind of got the, the main guy and then his nerdy friend. And I always thought Ernie was just going to be kind of the nerdy sidekick that's probably going to get killed about at, towards the middle of the second act
1: right it'd be like if evil ed was the star of the front night yeah, exactly because I, I was yeah. like
0: i was surprised as like we kind of get in get into this the you know the the second act of this movie that arnie's the main character i was actually kind of shocked by that that it was like wow he's the main character cuz i you know if you would ask me when i started watching this i'd be like he's going to be the first one to die i just it was i was shocked by it.
1: Well, you have things that are connected to each other that don't seem to really be connected at first. And I'll I'll go back to Halloween for just a second here. You have the opening of Halloween, and then you have the breakout at the sanitarium. That's the beginning of Halloween. And then the next day, when we meet Jamie Lee Curtis and her friends for about 15 minutes... You don't know why you're watching this, people, if you don't know what the story is and you've never seen it before. So it's like, what what do these things have to do with one another? I'm listening to somebody talk about fate in school, and I'm watching, and in this film, I'm watching these two guys walk around, and I'm beginning to wonder. I'm like, okay, clearly Dennis is Arnie's only friend, but how did they even get to be friends? And it's dropped through there that they grew up together, and. What it sets up is that Dennis is, you know, he comes off as like the only jock in school that anybody cares anything about, but that he actually is a decent guy, and that even though he is much more popular, much better looking, you know, runs in a better circle, he doesn't just leave Arnie in the dust, which is the trope of high school, right? Right. That, you know, everybody's got that one friend that everybody's like, how in the world are you friends with those people? And you get the idea that Arnie is that for Dennis. But it's easy to see how Dennis could be the lead in the film, because he is the better looking one. He is the charismatic one. And Arnie is this, you know, little nebbish nerd.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we get into the first kind of like main scene, I guess, of the movie is when they're in auto class. And, uh... You get, I yep. swear he was John Travolta at first.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Did the guy not look like him? I he? William swear. I was just like, John Travolta I've never heard of him. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, he is so the guy from, like, the Sweathawks. I mean, it is, they ripped that right out of there.
0: <laughs> but for me, again, I will get yeah. this movie props again because you get this scene in the movie, very Stephen King-esque, where you got the bully, the switchblade, and he pulls it on these guys, and he's just completely, you know, stabbing the guys at lunch, and you can tell this guy's probably made their life's a living hell for a while now. And I'm sitting there back going, okay, yeah, we got the standard bully that no one ever does anything about, but no, the teacher comes in and handles the bully. I was, again, shocked by this because it was like, wow, they're actually dealing with the bully in a proper way, a real-life way, where the teacher's like, enough of this, empty out your pockets, because I want to see what the hell you have in your pockets. And sure enough, he's a switchblade, and what happens? He gets, you know, suspended or expelled from school. And it's like you watch some movie like It or whatever, you got, you got the bully pulling out a switchblade and no one does anything. It's just like, it always kind of always took Ryan. me out of it because it's like, there's no time in reality that this type of behavior would be, you know, commonplace or not, you know, handled. And I was really, guess, very surprised that a movie, a Stephen King movie actually handled the situation in a realistic manner. And again, it was just setting me really off as just Whoa. showing that this movie is just, like I said, I think it's just a lot... Better paced and it just had a lot more better character moments than the other Stephen King movies that we've talked about so far.
1: Let's talk about two that specifically have main bully characters in them. Stand by Me, you know, Ace and his hoods would have probably been dealt with at some point, you'd think, to do some of the things that they allegedly had done to be what they were in that film. And then like a guy like Henry Bowers, I mean, he'd been held back a few grades, but at that point he'd have been sent off to boot camp, right? Like in real life, there's no way that someone like that would have just been allowed to exist. And I think what they're trying what they're trying and what the the answer for those things is always in the in the stand by me when there's no explanation to it. In it it's that the town is possessed by it and all that you know all that stuff. It makes adults turn a blind eye to what normally would be reprehensible behavior, right, because they're under the spell of it or whatever. Here, though, even though we've got a supernatural car, and we can argue about whether or not it—you know—it really has effects on Arnie, or if that's just him reacting off of it uh, later on, off the car later on. They, you know, they're setting up that this is going to be a very real place where some really freaky stuff happens to people, and that's why it makes the characters so much more interesting because they're not automatically psychic or they're—you know—there's none of that kind of stuff going
0: mm-hmm. on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's no one in here that's got like little bit of supernatural powers or knows more than what they should know like a lot of the other movies and even when you get into uh, arnie's family i mean those parents are kind of you know tight asses and stuff but again it's more of a realistic you know i think kind of a realistic portrayal of families yeah. you know, during that time even now i mean you got the mom the overbearing mom and kind of like the laid-back dad who's probably kind of tired of the wife's stuff but just goes along with it to, you know save grace and everything so yeah i mean I just thought, like, a lot of the characters, the way they have set them up in this first act were very realistic. I don't know
1: that, he would, that it's ever true, but it's almost like John Hughes was heavily influenced by the portrayal of parents in this film. Because they're completely worthless people. Like, they're, the, they're some of the worst parents ever, but not at their own fault. And Like, Arnie calls it out, even. He said that, you know, they can't stand the fact that I'm growing up and stuff because it just reminds them of how old they are. You know, and they're it's parents in the midlife crisis. You know, and they don't know how to relate to their son. They don't even really know how to deal with him, and so they're they just try to control him. And that's how every kid feels. At but the thing anyway, is, I'm right? sure right? you had school.
0: friends growing up too that had parents like that, where you're just kind of like, man, oh, yeah. made you think. You know, like grateful for the, your parents and stuff when you go and have dinner over at their house. But,
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's yeah, that's exactly what. Um, what you think about with these things. So I I agree. I mean, yeah, that's um that's true. I mean, I I don't uh hold on a second. Very strange. Okay, hold on just one minute. No, I agree, man. I mean, I think there's <laughs> There's always a relatable point when you try to put parents in films. Yeah, that's a trope about horror films, too. Parents just seem to disappear in them a lot of the times, and for unless they're the main part of the story. And I kind of like the way that they're dealt with here. I mean, they're certainly not central to this, but they're a big piece of particularly Arnie's life. You know, I mean, they're the only ones we really meet. And you get a lot of why... It it also makes a case for, like, you wonder, is when Arnie starts to change, is it Christine doing it to him, or is he finally just, you know, had enough of everybody picking on him? You know, that you, you get this sense that, like, you know, most of the time parents are the way they are because they care about you, and they have distinct concerns, but in his case they're they are overbearing and they do want to do it their way and not listen to him at all and there's there's a balance in there that's not happening for him. So what does he do? He does what kids do. He rebels. And that's the whole bit about when he meets you know Christine when he finds the you know, the rusted out old car to buy. And we gotta talk about George LeBay, Roberts Blossom Yo, know, I called it out in the plot summary. Old Blue from Old School, Phil Mana, and I reviewed a long time ago. Bit, character actor, been in a ton of stuff, but I had I had totally forgotten he was in this until I rewatched it, and I was like, oh, it's Blue, and he's got a really foul mouth." I I grew up in the South. I grew up around a lot of junkyards, and see this, I met this guy a hundred times. I know exactly what this is going for. He's this greasy, dirty old guy, and for whatever reason. You know, we see Arnie start to just you know totally go overboard. And I got to ask you a question here: Does Christine like tempt him in some way and convince him to buy her, or is he just at a point in his life where he's ready to rebel and this is a good shot at rebellion for him that makes him plop down the two fifty for this thing?
0: I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's a combination. I think it was. The car sensing this guy who's going to be vulnerable enough to be taken in and him just being at that, that vulnerable state where I think if it was someone like Dennis or something, it wouldn't have happened. The car, I think, kind of a... Tra- it's like a double whammy. The car attracts people like that, and people are attracted to a car like that. And it, I mean, it's a beautiful-looking car and everything like that, and you could totally see why the guy would want to go and fix it up because, you know, they kind of established that he's in the autos class, he's in the cars and everything like that. Right. But, yeah, I think it was just... Christine sensing him there at that time, I think his just love of cars brought him there. But when she was, when he was sitting in it, you can kind of see like what was going on in his head. Like, oh, no matter what you're going to ask for, it's not enough. You know, he just had in his mind that he had to buy the car, right. and it totally went against the type of character he seemed to be up until that point. Where, like, even Dennis was shocked that it was like you're you're buying this. You know, it's like it's not like you to do this and everything. So, I think it was a little bit of both.
1: Yeah. Someone who's usually contemplative who suddenly decides to be impulsive—it automatically, you know, signals something is wrong. Something's going on. What are you doing? You know, and I—I I, I, I I think it's think really up to a, your interpretation. A trope. Well, I'll say this: I have always read this as this is Arnie giving in to his id, if you will. You know, I'm going to finally just do something because I want to do it and not think about it enough, too much. I'm not going to outthink the room on this one. I'm just going to go with it. And because he sort of takes that little leap of faith or whatever, whatever evil fury spirit is in Christine rewards him, it's kind of a loose way to say it, but rewards him with the you know, undying loyalties. Because we, we'll find out later about her backstory and sort of how she wound up in the junk pile there or whatever is she was basically just left out there to rust and die, and nobody was ever going to mess with her again. Yeah. you know. And now finally this kid comes along who doesn't have anything better, and he just, like, when he says those things, like, whatever you're asking, it's not enough, like, it's sort of like the spirit gets turned on to that. It's like, okay, cool, I can dig Just this. thinking
0: about it a little bit more, I'm almost thinking that maybe him being there awoken her, because you think about it, you got the you got the old man there, and he was never tempted once by the car. So it might have right. just been the presence of someone like this that awoke in that and then all suddenly just kind of jived together and got him to get the car
1: well let's talk about that the old man's not tipped by the car because he talks to him about his you know uh, what is his relation or whatever his sister-in-law that died in Christine of carbon and monoxide poisoning and that his brother still didn't care you know he had, had a young niece got killed in it is that it just obsessed that guy until he died Finally. And so he had didn't have the same love for it that somebody like Arnie would. And that's why it never attracted me.
0: I think it's kind of a metaphor for the love that guys have for cars too. I think it's uh it's I mean, we all know guys like that. I mean, I'm almost kind of one wondering myself where I just, I, I love certain types of cars. I love these old muscle cars. And you've seen guys like that that are just completely in love with them. And, you know, there's a whole film
1: series built off <laughs> There's a whole film series based off that called the fast and the furious. Yeah, what are we gonna do I do that just sort one. of throw
0: <laughs> that out there. Oh,
1: well, you never know.
0: So. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but you see it like where these guys have, they give their cars names. They give them female names. Uh, so yeah. So what I was, yeah, I think it's just kind of the whole thing. Nah, what am I trying to get at? Um,
1: the attraction?
0: Yeah, I think just this whole movie almost is a way of just uh, how just like a love or something like that, that your love that, love can be, dest- I think the whole thing is just that love can be destructive. It's kind of what it's getting at.
1: It's love that turns into obsession, and blind obsession in particular, mm-hmm. can be incredibly destructive. I think that's what we're seeing here. When I said it in the outset, th- this film, is, if it's about anything, is about jealousy. You know, and let's look at Arnie for a minute. He's jealous of Dennis's life in a lot of ways. Dennis is cool, he's popular, he's you know, gets the attention of the girls, he's a great athlete, and he the only thing he can match with him is he knows about as much about cars as Dennis does. Because they say take the same classes and maybe, you know, Arnie's so smart he probably knows more. You know, that's really the only thing he's got on Dennis. But otherwise nobody I mean, Alexander Paul, particularly in the nineteen eighties, is a gorgeous woman. You know, and so why would any girl ever pick, you know, him over uh, Dennis? That would never happen, right? But it would happen if a guy like Arnie suddenly became the cool car guy and he he took his glasses off and he fixed his hair up a little bit. I've seen that happen, you know. Because when you can tempt somebody with something that maybe they didn't think about before, they can really, I don't know, they can go for it. And There's a lot of that going on here. And as soon as he takes the car home, I mean, what happens? His parents just flip their lid. His dad is like, you can't park that here. I won't let you even park the car here to work on, because they're so jealous that he went and did something on his own without telling them about is it. Is
0: that right? why, jealousy? Or is that just because they're just overbearing parents, and they need to have the, uh, the first and final say in almost every decision that he makes? Is
1: is it not both? I mean, I'm talking about the same thing. I think that on the surface level, yes. But if you're looking at it from what this film is about and about jealousy and obsession and control and all that stuff, then that would be exactly the underlying reasons as to why. You know, it also serves a plot point to give a place for you know for Christine to essentially magically transform and nobody notice the old drunk's garage, you know, and stuff like that. But it, uh, I, I like it. I like it as the metaphor for what you know, the parents can't stand it, and so get it out of our sight, which essentially just drives Arnie even further. Well, you can it. almost look at, like, kind right. what we
0: were talking about before. It's kind of like maybe this whole movie's just about love and how it's kind of like a thin line that you walk down that you sway one way, it goes into jealousy, and you sway another way, it goes into obsession. And I think kind of, like, got the characters all kind of fall into one of those categories there. So, but yeah, I mean, the parent, he brings it home, and the parent's... Completely flip out at them and stuff, and she's even yelling at the front. And I'm thinking, I'm like, man, if that was my friend's mom, would have been like, screw you, lady, don't be talking to me like that. She's like, like who are you? Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> this is your freaking son, man. You guys deal with this. You wanted a car. And, when he, you know, the guy, and plus he's, like, you know, he's driving around, what, a 68 Charger and stuff, and it's, like...
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, he's got, like, a great-looking, you know, Dukes of Hazard muscle car.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's, like, you know, like, he's trying to talk his friend out of getting a car, and it's almost, like, why are you trying to talk your friend out of getting a car? It's almost, like, in a way that maybe he... God, this is going to sound so bad, but you always see, like, the girls in high school always have that one fat friend. And it's always, like, I always figured it's, like, them. that They always <laughs> had that one fat friend around to make themselves feel better on a down day. And I kind of think maybe that Dennis well, is doing I, that with Arnie. I that. said that,
1: too, though, right? Yeah,
0: because, you know, like, he he's, yeah. he's dorky where, you know, Dennis isn't necessarily the best jock in the whole school. He's kind of like, you know, he's more popular, but he's not, like, the top guy. He's not the quarterback dating the head cheerleader. And I think in a way that he maybe kind of keeps around. They're friends for a while, but he keeps around Arnie just to kind of make himself feel better. And then when Arnie's trying to assert himself with getting a car, it's like right away it's like, no, don't get a car, don't get a car. And it's like, why? Why can't he have a car? you got a badass car. Be happy for your friend, you know?
1: Because it puts him on the same level. But I think also he's he's reacting like the parents would, but in a more subtle way of like, this is just not what you do, Arnie. So it's so, like, I'm just not used to you making those kind of decisions. So it's... you know, I, I think that's how he's dealing with it. But yeah, the parents totally freak out, and it does drive him to the you know the store at the old local garage run by Robert Prosky, the you know the guy from among other things, Mrs. Doubtfire and a lot of other stuff. Uh, Robert Prosky, there, um, real grouchy old drunk. But uh, the whole point is that it's all about Arnie restoring. And as he starts to work on her, I, I love the fact that the radio only plays 1950s rock and roll. You know,
0: yeah, but you know what, man? If you're if you're working on that car, what are you going to be listening to? You're going to be listening. You're going to you're going you're gonna to have the white T-shirt on, rolled up with a pack of you know Marv Reds in the sleeve, and you're going to be listening to '50s rock too.
1: I think you're right. I think it's exactly what's happening. But I love that though, and I want to say this. I know Michael Bay must have seen this film a lot because that's entirely you know how Bumblebee and the Transformer flicks <laughs> communicates is by just picking random lines out of songs, sort of back and forth and I always I can't help not think about that even though I saw Christine long before that when I see that in Transformers now I'm like oh it's kind of like if Christine was a guy and not you know completely homicidal uh, but I love how all the songs are you know their they're place particularly you know it's pledging all my love to you and all this stuff and then later on they you know he has a fight with his girlfriend or whatever and it's like nobody can love you better than me <laughs> and then the guys come to beat it up it's like keep a knock but you can't come in you know there's, there's all of that I mean he plays all this 50 50s rock and roll. And I'll, I'll tell another story again. I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of that kind of music with my dad. It was It's a love of his, is that old 50s rock and roll stuff. So driving through the country, fishing trips and stuff, we were always listening to that stuff. So seeing this brought back a lot of those memories. And I remember that. And I remember there were stations in the 80s that didn't, they played nothing but this stuff, which is now, I'm so old, The you know the classic stations play 80s music now. That's how old I am. But in the 80s, they played 50s music. So <laughs> I get it. But... As he begins to restore Christine and kind of work on her and stuff, the admiration starts to get mutual. And then, like, what is a pivotal scene in the film is he hears something crinkling as he walks away, and he starts to work on it, and he sees Christine start to, I don't know, like, help him along in the way that it corrects itself. That's kind of neat how that teases itself out, don't you
0: think? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I keep wanting to go back to the uh, the garage owner, too. It was, you know, he brings in this, you know, beautiful 58 Plymouth Fury, and it's like they're ripping on the car. I'm just thinking, I'm like, what is wrong with these people? They don't see how really cool this car is. I mean, I don't, in a way, I was almost kind of, I am kind of seeing it as, like, almost like the car represents Arnie and himself, that he's just trying to fix himself up. You know, he sees that he's just this rundown guy and stuff, and that he wants to be able to build confidence. And around the and, and along the way of building confidence, everybody's going to try to bring you down. And I think that's kind of like everybody with this right. car. We're like, oh, it's a piece of junk. It's a piece of junk. But Arnie sees what it can become, and I think it's almost like it's a metaphor for himself because he can see what he can become as a person. And well,
1: it, and one one could argue that in this film, Arnie restores Christine, and then Christine restores Arnie, or or at least fixes Arnie. You know, in different ways. Yeah, they ways. both, they both I mean, fix each other up. Trouble. Yeah, I mean, he totally goes through the trouble of restoring it. I mean, that should be said. Because one, one of the things people remember about this film is the car restoration scene where it self-restores. That doesn't happen until in the second act. So all Or late in the second act, really. So all here in the first act, Arnie works his butt off on this car to get it looking good. And as he does... He develops a different appearance. He takes away his thick glasses. He starts dressing in all black. He starts dressing like one of the cool guys, you know, and starts dressing like one of the bullies that got kicked out of school. He almost adopts, uh, you know, fake Travolta's look a little bit, which, I, you know, I'm with you. Like, if you're working on a car like that, how could you not start dressing you know, in what you would consider to be cool from the 1950s which would be black leather and stuff like that I think it totally fits.
0: even up to this point this movie is not a horror movie at all because nothing has really happened it's still like as we said in the beginning it's all characters yeah we should building. say that I
1: mean, there's like nothing. there's no yeah and it's very it's very much like the way the original Halloween is paced. Is For a long time, there's no killing. There's nothing happening that is remotely violent on the screen for so long in the film. And you have to wait for it. And it teases mm-hmm. you. And I, I totally love well, you that.
0: You get, get the prologue to kind of set up what type of movie you're going to be in. And then it kind of just goes all the way back. And then it's going to slowly build back up to that point again. Which I'm really enjoying at this point, too. I mean... If I, I mean, I went into this knowing that this movie is about a possessed car or a haunted car, but if I would have saw this when it came out or even saw it before I knew what it was about, this movie could have easily just been about a guy who's just kind of taking his, you know, frustrations and transforming it into the car himself. You know, even like later, you know, when it's like, you know, he gets into the killings and stuff like that, they could have made it a little bit more cloudy on is it the car or is it Arnie driving the car? You know, where it's like they could have made it almost like a mystery, like is it a supernatural car or is it Arnie doing the killing?
1: Yeah, and you know what? We'll talk about that as as those things happen in the whole police investigation. That's when Harry Dean Stanton gets in this film. Because they they could have done that differently. And I'm almost glad that... But I'm really glad they didn't. I like the way it's played. I like that, again, so much of this is just character building and you see this guy actually get the fruit of his labor. You know, he works really hard. He's worked hard for the money he spent on Christine. He works really hard to restore it and he gets it restored and it starts to get him a little bit of popularity and that kind of bridges us into the second act. And I think that really starts when he's got Christine restored and he shows up at the football game and, you know, all of a sudden Dennis, you know, has his own bout of jealousy. He sees Lee, hanging out with Arnie, and he's like, what's going on, you know, and so as he's running out for a pass, he gets, you know, just clobbered, one of the, I mean, I've seen a lot of football movies, man, that was, that was vicious, that would be 15 yards and a $10,000 fine from Roger Goodell nowadays, but it, like, he breaks his legs, you know, in the process, it's really violent. I gotta ask, but I gotta you ask start you, I gotta to cut you
0: off right here, mm-hmm. yeah. what high school football game do you know takes place during the afternoon? <laughs>
1: You know what? I actually remember asking about that when I was younger. I was, cause I'm with you. I'm like, it's Friday night lights, man. What's up? But in the Northeast, and a lot of places, the weather is so cool and cold during the evenings that it's hard to stage games at night or they don't do it as much as before AstroTurf became really affordable and such like that so they used to do games on Saturday afternoons and like my folks remember when like the big homecoming game and stuff was always a Saturday afternoon affair it was before cable television and college football took over everything really but there are places that still do this where the game is you know Saturday morning it's not on Friday night so I, I'm with you it's it's strange but
0: is this is this probably why most of the college players come from the West Coast South or Middle West you never hear about the Northeast <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's why Northeast produces hockey and basketball players. yeah yeah they're, they're not they're, <laughs>
0: they're cut out of some pretty thin skin over there from what you're telling it's, it's me it's a little
1: different <laughs> it's a little different but but like I said the, I, I totally buy that but what do you make of the whole the way it's set up of how, how Dennis gets hurt because the way the music plays, and of course, once you know the film and know what it's about, it's almost like Christine caused him to get hurt. But I don't see it that way. I think he got hurt because of the, again, the overriding lesson here. Jealousy will cost you, and particularly when you cross
0: Fury. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Christine caused it overall when you're looking at the big picture thing because she transformed Arnie and that caused the whole thing. Kind of like you know a trickle-down effect. But, yeah, I mean, the whole reason why his legs got broke was because he was looking at the girl as opposed to looking at the football. And I think it kind of goes back to the whole thing, too. You know, you talk about jealousy, just like what you're saying, where it's like he's taking his mind off of what he should be focused on for something that's completely trivial, something he's completely jealous of, and he ends up getting hurt because of it. And, yeah, I mean, again, it's, again, another thing, it doesn't even show the car doing it, which is great. It it focuses on the car, but you're still kind of questioning. It's like, mm -hmm. what's going on with this car? He's not really coming out and saying this car's possessed. Right. real.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, you don't know. Of course, Buddy sees Arnie and Christine at the football game. And, of course, he becomes, you know, totally enraged. Which I'm like, you got expelled from school. How are you even at the game? <laughs> you know. But I guess it's public, so they're not going to monitor it that well. They decide they're going to take it out. Arnie goes and and here's the thing that gets me. Arnie has restored this car. It's gorgeous. And his folks still won't let him park it in the driveway? Is it leak oil? What's the deal? I was like that that would improve your curb appeal, Dad. But I I guess I just go with that. Uh, right? I'm
0: thinking that they probably don't want him to do that because it's gonna be if they allow him to do it, it's almost like they're accepting the behavior that he put forth in the beginning where it's like
1: in, interesting point. I hadn't thought of it that way. That's that's a good way to look at it. So, but the point is that the, the hoodlums break in there, and they start absolutely destroying this car. I mean, they beat it to ribbons. One guy takes a dump on the dash. I mean, you talk about. Just of course, it's the fat vehicle. guy that does it. <laughs> Of course, that's the one guy that would do it, right? Nobody else has got one in the chamber to go.
0: Oh yeah, he's he's always ready to go any any time. Can I tell
1: you though? That is again, having not read it, I don't know, but that just that feels so Stephen King. That is, I've seen that in a number of his books, and it's the kind of thing his reprehensible characters would do but i think what it's trying to do there is it's going to play with you as an audience member you're going to have to decide are you okay with what happens to these people because they are such jerks and because of the awful things they do later on because it's going to ask you to make a choice this film does Is you know in in halloween it's always clear michael myers is killing people who while they do things that aren't necessarily you know all on the up and up they're not necessarily deserving of death, either, at that point, and the way he kills them. Well, that's what happens here with Christine. All the bad people start getting whacked after they do this damage to her. But, I mean, they really do a number on her. And I love how at that point, Lee is already kind of tired of Arnie and his obsession with Christine. So he's like, we can walk to the movies, whatever, let me just go get my wallet. He goes inside and he sees the mess and he just totally flips out on her, right? And How about the way his parents react to it, though? We've decided we're going to help you buy another car. And, I mean, he gets his dad by the throat and calls him a motherfucker. And, I mean, I'm like, who is this guy? And it's a totally different Arnie when he walks back out of that house that
0: night. Yeah, he's almost acting like he's possessed in a way by the car himself. Well,
1: that's what I was going to ask. Is he at that point, or is he just giving in again to that unbridled
0: id? I think, again, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think she's kind of like almost influencing it, almost like the way Jack was influenced in The Shining, where he's not directly possessed, but it's pushing the right buttons in him to make him act a certain way.
1: Ah, very good. You know, I, I again, they're in the same era. This this story feels like it's got a lot of The Shining in it, except, you know, instead of The Shining being a, a power that could be for good or whatever, it's definitely all left. I mean,
0: it comes off very much like, you know bring up the shining again right now i mean it's like you know jack drinking that almost like Arnie's drinking You kind of see this in like you know lifetime movies where a guy drinks or something like that and he he leaves the house or you know maybe one of those lifetime specials where the son's on steroids or something like that and like the dad tries to call him down and he attacks the father and stuff you know with his roid rage or something i mean that's how it came off to me and you know it's when he sat down for dinner too and the parents were saying you know the parents are being empathetic with him. I mean, they saw how much he loved this car. They may not have agreed with it. Right. It's almost kind of coming off like a parent who, I mean, God, I got so many analogies right now, but the way like, you know, a guy a guy, like your son's dating some girl that the parents didn't approve of and the girl breaks his heart and stuff like that, instead of them sitting there going, ha ha, we told you so and stuff like that, they're trying to help him out. Being I mean, like, yeah, we, we understand right. you're heartbroken and, you know, we're going to go get you a car and stuff like that because, you know, we just they see that i think they saw that you know they're kind of the relationship was kind of breaking apart and everything and they're trying to re you know remend the whole thing and Peter snaps at him like no i don't want that and he yeah he attacks the father and that was actually pretty you know shocking moment again i mean it's like he's walking out and he calls his dad uh always calls him a motherfucker i believe it is and like yeah (laughs) father i mean like any father would grabs him is like what did you say to me and goes and he just, I think he slams something down and sort of choking him, and the father, not necessarily because he's being choked or whatever because it hurt. but I think he was just so shocked that his son, this guy who, you know, probably two months ago was wearing, you know, two inch thick glasses with tape down the center, is now doing this, and I think it just, right there was a complete transformation of Arnie's character I think at that moment there was no going back for him.
1: Exactly, and Christine clearly reacts to that, because when he goes back to her, he's looking at the mess, and it's almost that when he turns away, as if to say, I guess I'm going to have to go back, make up with my folks, and let them get me a car, because this is hopeless, and he hears the metal cranking behind him, and I love this scene, he's he's like, okay, show me, and Christine fixes herself, some of the best effects that they've ever rendered. I mean, I know it was done with like plastic and air bubbles and stuff like that. I was. It still looks cool, even thirty years I later. Thought it was just
0: reverse. I love
1: this. No, no, no. It's it. They had a lot of models for Christine, and a lot of it was of plastic. And they would bend it in, and then they had these little air cannons that would just pop it out. And it's all close ups, and you know, it's just magic. It's trickery, you know, film trickery, and it's. It, I don't know. This is one of those things. I mean, nowadays it would all be CGI, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. But back then you had to do things for real. And it's one of the things, one of the reasons I tend to like the older Carpenter films is because they're practicals. You know, it's all practical. You had to come up with some way of doing this. And the guys that worked on this did a great job with it. And I thought it was it was well done. And it's a cool scene, too, because it finally lets us in on what we've sort of known all along, but that, yes, Christine is indeed possessed, and can do these things and the transformation is complete because the way arnie blew up at his parents shows that he's a different person now and christine is like okay i'm going to show you my full hand now too and this is what we get and then it's, I mean, we get into the kills now, man. Now it's Michael stalking people around the neighborhood. It's it's pretty vicious. And let's talk about that first kill. You know, the fat guy in the in the alley. You know, Christine smashes herself down to like a quarter of her size to push in and crush him on the wall. Now that was very very stunning and effective as a kill. I I loved it.
0: Do you feel like kind of maybe like when Arnie Blatt lashed out at his parents, that was almost like that right there was the pushing point for Christine as, as a being itself where up until this point really christine i mean yeah i was in the choking stuff with the girlfriend and stuff like that but it was never going out and being malicious on its own you know what i'm saying like everything was brought to her when she was yeah. doing it but now it's going to go out on the hunt and it seems like it all happened after arnie choked his dad and when he came back in there i think it was almost like the complete right. turning point for both of them where it was like you're broken you're broken right now we're going to fix each other again and you know this time you know screw everybody that's the way I kind of took it. And then, yeah, we get into the first kill of there where, you know, I thought it was actually a pretty good chase scene too. I mean, this is where the movie completely changes. Where up until this point, you're really not sure about Christine, but now after Christine shows her hand by retransforming itself and, you know, flashing the lights at him, it goes into the whole, you know, horror aspect right now. And I really liked it when she's chasing down the fat kid and, you know, I would have thought to him like, oh, okay, he's just going to run straight and she's going to run him down. But no, actually the fat kid was doing a little bit of moves to get away. It was like jumping over the uh, concrete guardrail and going over the fence. Surprising for a guy that size.
1: Well, you know what though? You know what I love about that is it's realistic. Again, this is where I think Carpenter really takes over in the film is in these these scenes. And it's, it's what would really happen. I mean, in the horror trope film, he would just run in a straight line and get run over. I'm talking to you, Charlize and Prometheus. But, In real life, you do everything you can, and adrenaline's a heck of a thing, (laughs) Nick. It'll get you to do a lot of stuff you're not built to do. And I love how he gets down this, you know, slim alley, and it's all about, well, the car can't fit down there. And then the car smashes itself, to like a half of its size to get in there and get him. And the horrified look on his face as he knows he's got nowhere else to go, and she crushes him against the wall, I mean, that was incredibly visceral and effective.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, even right now, though, you don't know if Arnie's driving the car or not. You don't know until the point where it actually goes yeah. into that thing and you can see that it's smashing itself and still running. I think that right there was the point where it's like, okay, now it's, it's Christine that's actually doing that. It's not Arnie that's behind the wheel.
1: Well, and I love how Christine sets all these kills up. She does these things when Arnie has a strong alibi every time when one of these things happens. And the cop, you know, Harry Dean Stanton, gets onto this. And the reason he can never arrest Arnie is because he can't beat through that alibi, but he's convinced that Arnie is the one doing it. You know, and I mean, Christine comes out with some really gruesome ways to take people out. I mean, she takes the last three gang members and gets them into service station. I love how she pushes pushes Buddy's car into the other guy, and it blows up the fuel tank, and it's on fire, and Christine's on fire, and she blows the building up, kills the other guy, and then she chases fake John Travolta down the highway. That's one of the, the best visuals of this film, is Travolta, run or your buddy, running down the highway, and this blazing car coming after him. And it's just like, you know he can't get away. There's no way he can outrun a car.
0: Oh, there's no way. Yeah, I thought the, the visuals of, you know, Christine on fire was really cool. I mean, it's the car from hell, literally.
1: Yeah, it's, it's iconic, right? I mean, it's just you, you can't get away from it. And I love how she just runs him over and leaves him just burning on the asphalt. And every time, you know, restores herself to showroom condition. Well, not this,
0: but she you doesn't know? restore it right away. She goes back to the garage.
1: Right, and that's when the, the old owner gets in there and she winds up killing him, so it makes it look like he did it all. You know, which is, again, I'm like, man, Christine has got the whole plot worked out. I'll take care of all your enemies, Arnie, and I'll even blame it on, you know, a guy who's, at this point, just really just been a jerk, but not for any other reason than this than he is one, you know, (laughs) and that way there's no heat for you. You know, did it all for you. And I'm like, man, you talk about like messed up. Like that's the ultimate, uh, you talk about lifetime movies, man. The, you know, the obsessed woman who I'll kill off all your enemies and then you'll love me forever. Right. Cause I'll blame your boss that, you know, no one will believe, but they'll have no other choice.
0: No, at this point though, I'm going to have to, this is where I kind of turned on the movie though, is up until this point, the first two thirds, I thought were really, really great. But we get to this last third and it didn't go the way I thought it would go, and I guess in you know, a lot of times you can sit there and say that's good. But I really thought that the last maybe half hour of this movie really kind of cheaped out. I don't know if maybe they ran out of money or whatever, but it just seemed like it was just kind of dragging at the end, and there really was no climax at all. I mean, yeah, you, you got the friends like, oh, we got to well, save Arnie, me. but shouldn't the shouldn't the the plot have been that maybe like he just finally figures out that you know. He he knows that Christine does this, and he 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 looks at her and goes, "I can't become this anymore. I got to go back and change who I am and stuff." And then he turns on the car. You know what I'm saying?
1: Can I say this? Can I? Yeah, I totally get what you're saying, and I think in anybody else's film, but Carpenter and Kings, that is, is exactly how this would go. If they remade this today, Arnie would would you know Dennis would have died at the football game. Arnie would have. To make this transformation and would take out Christine, and it may cost him his life in the end, but he would go out a good guy, but as it turns out, Arnie is you know is totally taken over,
0: but he goes on like he goes on like a through film
1: thing, well yeah but let's let's talk before we get to that though, to back to your point. I like the fact that it wouldn't in any other film too, the climax would have been Christine taking out all the bullies, you know that's the act too,
0: right. No, I see. I like I like that she took out the bullies in the middle, but I think it would have been a little bit stronger if Arnie would have sat there and gone, "Yeah, I wanted revenge on him, but not in this way." You know, when we finds out the one guy was basically ripped in half and stuff, and I think it would have been like, "Okay, they, you know, they they destroyed my car, they picked on me, but they never hurt me really."
1: But that almost happens though. Let's let's talk about it for a second here. You know, Arnie's on a date at the drive through with Lee, and he's starting to get real into her and close to her stuff, and Christine he starts choking her. You know, she's like, no, you're not going to cheat on me after everything I did, after all those people I killed for you. This is what you're going to do. And he tries to choke her to death. And that's when she goes to Dennis for help. And they go and talk to Arnie. And that's when you realize that Arnie is totally given over to Christine the same way that she is or that the car is about him. I actually like that. I thought that was a good reveal because you get this moment of peace. Like it looks like, okay, Arnie's gonna be the cool guy now with the killer car, but no, he can't have anybody else. He can't have other relationships. And he still thinks he can, but what he doesn't realize is that there is nobody else but Christine.
0: So basically, I mean what it is is almost a replay of the Shining at the end. Where in sense instead of Jack Torrance, you know, realizing the hotel's evil and he's gonna, you know, help his family escape even though it cost him his life. You know, it's he becomes part of the hotel and ends up going out there to try to kill him, and he ends up just killing himself by his own mistake. And it's the same exact thing with this.
1: Well, the difference in the in the Shining, the film, and the Shining, the book. In the Shining, the book, the first thing you said is exactly what happens. I know. Torrance realizes yeah, I'm what talking happens. About though. Yeah, yeah. You know, he he blows the hotel to save his family, realizing it'll kill him. In the movie, you're right. He totally gives over to it and becomes the crazy Jack Nicholson character. That we know, so I, I mean, it is the same story. Stephen King's often been, you know, hammered on for writing the same story over and over and over again, you know, and even borrowing the same exact things over and over again. And I don't, I can't blame him. I mean, look, if you know how to make a hit, <laughs> make that hit. You know, I don't want to hear your your new crap cheap trick. I want to hear you play No Surrender.
0: So you're saying instead of you know, instead of you know, having it be a movie with Indians, you change it to be a movie with blue aliens that look like cats.
1: Well, I mean, everything happens, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, it is—it is, it does come around. Boy, I've never connected Pet Cemetery and Dreamcatcher in that way before, but I will. I will. Next time I watch Dreamcatcher, I'll, I will think of that. Actually, I was so, talking
0: about Dancing with Wolves and Avatar. Well,
1: that'll that'll work too. So, <laughs> But point being here, you say the film starts to fall apart for you in the third act. I actually like this because, again, realistically, you've got two friends worried about your other friend. You're not just going to let him go. You're going to try to figure out what's up. And Dennis has been hip to the fact that there's more to Christine than meets the eye for a while.
0: Yeah, but do I got to say, though, what's on everybody's mind, though, is you got, you got the Plymouth Fury. You got the 68 Charger. Why was there not some type of car chase at the end?
1: because i think that would have been the trope thing to do See, i and think I, they just well, i think they ran out a
0: of time because
1: i i don't think so i i think not at all i think what happened is that there was a conscious choice made one the story doesn't go that way but two that would be the thing you do in gone in 60 seconds or bullet or something like that from the era they're not going to do that and carpenter is known for particularly in this era of his films is for not taking the turn that makes the most sense you know, like it, like it would be the 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 standard thing that would happen, and he would go left the other way. Now he's done that so many times now that his films are a mess. But back then, and particularly in this one, it works because it doesn't go down the same.
0: I think, in a way, though, like like what we've been saying, is that the movie has been very, very a uh, slow build, a good slow build, but a slow build nonetheless. Right. But you can't even call it a slow build because it really didn't build towards anything. I mean. You talk about build. I, there's, there's no climax. Yeah, yeah, there
1: is. Hold on, hold on. I want to, want to challenge that thought right now. There is a climax. The climax With starts the when loser. Dennis. <laughs> no, no. When Dennis carves into the hood of Christine, meet me at the junkyard tonight. You know, Darnell's tonight. It's like I'm sending the message to both of you. You know, right now, you meet me there tonight, and we're gonna finish this thing. You know, but and, and I, I like the fact that you know. I mean, if Christine is the haunted. A car that can kill whoever it wants, she could have taken him out then. But she's like, okay, fine. That's how you want to play it, Dennis? No problem. You know, and goes along with it. I, that is a climax. The climax is in the junkyard when... It's pretty weak. Christine it's pretty is chasing Lee.
0: It's pretty weak.
1: When Christine's chasing Lee around, Ch- check that out. Let's Let's talk about that for a minute. You said a minute ago, Arnie goes out like a chump. He goes out as Christine is trying to run through the office... To kill Lee, and he gets thrown through the windshield
0: and impaled on glass. That's not going out like going a out chump. like a choke. Pretty... He didn't do anything. He's just he was sitting behind the wheel of the car. He's got he's got he's 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 almost like it. Kind of reminded me of Jim Carrey on the little bike and Dumb and Dumber, laughing. It's like he's in the car, and it's like you're not doing anything, man. You know, I would have liked it if it would have been you know he was driving Christine, or you know they were both in the car having like smashing into you know Dennis in his car or something something a little bit more. It doesn't have to be action-packed, but just something a little bit more that's going to have you on the edge of your seat. Because they tried doing that with the bulldozer stuff, and it's just like, "Eh, okay, yeah, okay, just just crush the car already. (laughs) You
1: say it'd be cooler if he was driving. I took it the whole time that he actually was driving. Christine was letting him drive her. And that's what got him killed. He's not just sitting there letting her drive around. I mean, he does this whole reckless driving thing with Dennis before. I think he, I mean, Christine was allowing him to drive her. And that's what got him killed is he tried to hold on to power. He had no business being a part of. And when he's dead, that's why Christine is like, well, I'm taking out the rest of you too. Otherwise, why would Christine even care? I think Arnie is, is driving, going after Lee, and that's what gets him killed. He becomes so into his obsession that it literally drives him to his death.
0: See, I thought his obsession was what killed him, and then after he died that it was Christine freaking out, just trying to get back at them for what they, what, what they took from her.
1: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, she goes, Christine goes insane as much as an insane car can, you know, and, and I mean, she proceeds to keep attacking Lee, and I love how Dennis comes in with that bulldozer and just beats the crap out of her and crushes her. I mean, that's straight out of Monster Truckville, man. Uh, that that looked cool. I mean, I, I thought that I thought was I thought it was impressive so that he could drive a
0: bulldozer and he's never driven one before in his life. <laughs>
1: Yeah, those aren't easy to do. From what I No, I, I, I used to drive a bulldozer
0: <laughs> when I was working construction, and uh, yeah, to, to do what he did would probably take a little bit of learning. It's something you can't really just do on the fly. <laughs> but yeah, it I means a movie, so I don't know. I just, just for me, it's just I wish that it would have been something a little bit more at the end, a little bit something more, higher stakes at the end. It just kind of felt, it felt, it felt, it felt a little cheap.
1: I want to give you the analog that it has, though. Why would a licensed psychiatrist be a dead shot with a three fifty Magnum? Because that's exactly what happens at the end of Halloween, and we just accept it. Why? Because the film has earned that give me at that point because of everything it's put us through. I, I'm with you. In real life, yes, Dennis shouldn't know how to drive that bulldozer. But we'll give it because it's giving us what we want, which is, we know, the only way to destroy Christine is... To completely and totally crush her, and I mean, Dennis has to go over her several times, and finally even realizes this isn't going to be enough, and it throws her in the trash compactor that turns the car into a big cube. I mean, I thought I was watching Superman three again for a second with the way that thing worked and and the whole compactor scene, but I liked that. I thought that was
0: great. I don't know. I just, I just, I just felt that that last the climax. I thought the film was building towards something a little bit more spectacular than that. I mean, in in Halloween, you have you know Michael Myers going after Jamie Lee Curtis and stuff, and that's you know you got the slow build to that, but the last half hour of that movie is edge of your seat. And even when you watch something like The Thing, and you know, the Thing, it builds towards you know the guys. At well,
1: wait a minute, the thing the thing ends with Kurt Russell and Keith David staring at each other in the snow, waiting to die because yeah, but you got the big giant Thing monster thing.
0: coming out that he throws TNT at. Yeah,
1: yeah we, but that we, happens yeah, like, but we had like like five minutes before.
0: Everything we had in here was. I don't know, it's just, just the ending was boring. That's all I'm going to say. It just was boring.
1: Well, how, how about the end of it, though, where Lee and Dennis start walking around and they hear the music start to play? And she's like, I hate rock and roll. And it zooms in on you know Christine starting to slowly form back into place. I mean, the consciousness is still intact. They don't win. That's the thing. I mean, that's typical Stephen King, particularly right there. And it's straight out of Halloween. Oh, that's typical you know, John shoot, Carpenter. We, what, yeah, we shoot him off the ledge, and where is he? We I like I said, I haven't yeah, diez, seen da, many da, of da, John
0: Carpenter's films, but I know how they all end. That he never, ever <laughs> has a tight bowl wrapped on any of his movies. There's always a thread left open. It's always a bleak ending where it's like, oh, he thought it was over. I think a
1: lot of that, though, is because he's influenced by guys like Hitchcock and Lovecraft and stuff where there was always something left unexplained and that that is what is legitimately scary. And I'm down for that. I thought that was smart. I I liked the ending that... They think they've gotten away, but they really haven't. And maybe they haven't this time. Maybe Christine reforms and drives away. It's like, I've had enough of these people. And they go to another town. But, you know, we don't know. It's not like she ever shows up again. But uh, there's no Christine to the Reckoning. See, I think it would have been you funny, know. though, if they
0: would have actually, like, had melted it <laughs> down into some metal. And then all suddenly she gets reformed as, like, a Ford Pinto or something. <laughs>
1: It would have been better if they turned it into, like, you know, memorabilia or something like that, and then, uh, you know, somebody bought a necklace and it kills them or something, I guess. You know, that would be how it goes. But, Nick, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Christine?
0: Uh, For for Christine, 66% that I really liked and 33% that I found kind of meddling. So with that, I will have to give it – boy it's right it's teetering between medium and large popcorn but because of how impressed i was with the first two thirds and just how it had so much plausibility in the beginning as far as how the characters acted and behaved i'm going to give it a large popcorn i think out of all the stephen king movies that we have reviewed so far this is definitely the second best one right behind uh the shining and right next to a uh, stand by me i think it's a really good movie and one that i kind of wish that i would have seen a little bit earlier and uh, very very enthused to check out the book now actually after uh watching the movie i made sure to uh set aside a copy at my library via the uh, online reserve system so i'm gonna pick that up tomorrow and uh Check it
1: out. Very cool. Be very interested to, to read your thoughts on that, too. You can post this on the Facebook page and uh, on uh, on our website as well after you've, you've read it. I I'm the, I haven't ever read it, and I don't know that I ever will. But I give this film a very well-earned large popcorn. I think it's great. I, I really do. It's not perfect by any means. That's why it's not extra large. But it's one of Carpenter's best films. And it's one that I will go to and always hold up. It's like this one is It, it is a very much a Carpenter film, and I think it's one of the best Steve been King adaptations we've had. I really do think this one holds up well, and it's a lot of fun, and particularly if you've never seen it before or if you can introduce it to someone that's never seen it, it. I think it's a fun ride, and it's a fun one to take, and I enjoy this. I'm surprised at myself that I don't visit this film a little more often, and I'm making it a point to now going forward because I, I realize how good it really is, and uh, again, it's not the greatest thing, but I, I give it its... Act 3 needs in order to get to the end because I think it earns them along the way. So large popcorn for me, and I I think it's one of the better ones we've done as well. Uh, I'll join you in that one. As we have come to really the next to the last episode in what's going to be our Selected Works of Stephen King here. I mean, there's a lot of Stephen King stuff happening, man. I mean, we we didn't do Misery. Uh, There's a new Carrie movie coming out uh, late in the
0: fall. Children of the Corn Part 6.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, we didn't get to that. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff. Mangler Part end, 2. But you, you know what? <laughs> I do think we're going to get to uh, what is a biggie for a lot of folks. I know particularly the book fans and definitely fans of, of his films that have been adapted into TV miniseries. We're going to do The Stand. And we're going to break it into two parts. I mean, it's four pieces, the, the actual film. But we're actually going to do the first two and then the the back two, kind of like what we did with Ed. It's going to be a two-parter episode to wrap up our selected works of Stephen King retrospective should be a lot of fun we've done a lot of cool stuff this year i mean we did superman that was awesome we did the fast and the furious series uh, which is was a blast and we got some other things planned Toward the end of the year, just hang in there with us, folks, and you'll be along for the ride with us. So, thanks again for listening to us. You can find more episodes in the archive section of our website, slash movies. You can also find links to our Twitter and our Facebook pages. Catch up with us on Facebook. Let us know what you think. And, you know, do you agree, disagree with us on these reviews? Let us know. We're always glad to interact with you guys on the social media. Till next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Film Street. Thanks for listening to Film Street. Visit our website, ContinuousPlayPodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. They started it. That's not true.
0: All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act
1: Section 504C2, Title 17. You know, on the day I was born, the nurses all gathered round. And they gazed at a wide wonder at the joy they had found. Spoke up, said leave this one alone. She could tell right away that I was bad to the bone.